Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Arne Westard. I'm going to be the chair for this session tonight. American policy towards Israel has always been a topic that has fascinated people who deal with different approaches to power and to interests. And the main reason for that is that it has been very difficult to explain, uh, which, of course, is great for those of us who live from trying to explain things. It means that we can come up with very different interpretations and make all of them sound plausible. The main lines of the discussion have been whether it is strategic policy, international interest, or domestic politics that have steered uh, U.S. policy towards the Middle East and towards Israel uh, in particular. And this has been an ongoing debate. I mean, it was a debate when the State of Israel was founded, uh, and it has been a debate ever since. Uh, and since um, about last year, um, this has become particularly important in terms of U.S. policy debates, not just because of events in the Middle East, as all of you will know, but also because of articles that have been published by political scientists and historians in the United States, John Mearsheimer and Steve Waltz, uh, Peace in Foreign Affairs, maybe the most well-known of these, that try to uh, have a different take, uh, bring together different strands of understanding how American policy towards Israel has developed and approach it much more critically, which I think was their main point, um, than what has been done what has been done so far by linking uh, U.S. domestic politics to different visions, different ideas about its foreign policy interests. We are very lucky to have with us tonight Dr. Michael Thomas uh, to present on the topic of his new book, American Policy Toward Israel, The Power and Limits of Beliefs. The book is just out. It's literally, and I can use this term uh, not in Wayne for once, literally hot off the press. It's been out for a week and is published by Rutledge in the LSE's new series of international studies um, with, that, with that publisher. Michael uh, got his PhD in international relations from the LSE in 2005, but before that he had a long career as a lawyer um, with his degrees in law from Harvard Law School and from Georgetown Law Center. He told me um, before the lecture started tonight that he got particularly interested in dealing with what is perhaps the most intractable problem of U.S. foreign policy by having a long um, career uh, in uh, dealing with very complex litigation. So I can understand where the connection is here between complexities in legal terms, and particularly uh, defense terms, and American policy towards Israel, some of these I mean, there may be court cases that are as complicated as the situation in the Middle East. I don't think there can be very many. So Michael is someone who's made a transition from a long, listless um, career in law and over on to becoming uh, someone who deals primarily with international relations. Um, and it's very interesting to see how many people who come from various different backgrounds, particularly here at the LSE, but also in a broader sense, who take up some of those topics that scholars who've had a much longer career within the respective fields uh, have been very uh, uh, hard put to come up with clear conclusions on. So it's a great pleasure to have you here tonight, Michael, and we're very much looking forward to your presentation, and there will be a Q&A session afterwards. Please. 
Thank you very much for that very kind uh, introduction. Um, I'm very honored and, to be honest, a little surprised to be standing here. Um, I uh, came to many events in this, um, in this hall, but I always sat out where you are. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, but as I say, just a little surprised that I'm, that I'm standing up here. You know, it's often said that the United States has a special relationship with Israel. When analysts use that term, what they're usually referring to is uh, the strong emotional affinity that Americans very generally have for Israelis and for Israel based on religious belief, on their perceptions of shared culture and values, on Holocaust guilt, and on other similar sources. It provides a basis for supporting Israel when strategic arguments sometimes seem thin or dubious. But resulting policies are not simply moral support or even guarantees of Israel's security. America provides massive and essentially unconditional economic, military, and political support. Not always, but that has been the presumption since at least the Reagan administration, even when Israeli governments pursue policies that are opposed by the United States. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about how American policy came to be what it is and hopefully thereby to suggest circumstances under which it might change. First, however, some indication of how special is it. From 1976 to 2004, when Iraq took the title in this regard, Israel was, each, in each of those years, the leading recipient of American aid. Aid over those years totaled about $146 billion in constant 2004 dollars. Israel was the only country that receives its money as grants in the first 30 days of each fiscal year, and the economic aid is unallocated and unaudited. Israel's exports to the U.S. have been duty-free since 1985. Until recently, it was only Israel that benefited from a law allowing contributions to its charities to be deducted from income reported for tax purposes in the United States. U.S. law also requires that America provide Israel a qualitative military edge over all possible adversary states. U.S. military assistance then constitutes about 23% of the Israeli defense budget. In 1988, they were declared a major non-NATO ally of the United States, and that meant that Israel had preferences in defense contracting and in acquiring surplus materiel. The two parties, the two countries also partner in R&D programs. They coordinate strategic planning, war fighting techniques. The Israel Defense Forces have achieved interoperability with the U.S. forces unmatched by any other U.S. ally. Partnership has become embedded in habits of thinking, in institutional design, in programs, in staffing, and in budgets. Israel's potential adversaries have long understood that Israel cannot be defeated militarily. And U.S. political support of Israel is also unlike that afforded other allies. Massive added aid was given when Israel's economy faltered in the 80s, when Israel stayed out of Desert Storm in 91, when the Soviet immigrants started flooding into Israel in 92 and at other times. Beginning in 73, the costs of implementing agreements favored by the U.S. have been largely underwritten by the U.S., and Israel shelters Israel against the international community. In the first 60 years of the U.N., 39 out of a total of 181 vetoes by all of the P5 members of the Security Council were cast 
by the U.S. to kill resolutions that would have either uh, criticized or made demands on Israel. And many others, of course, were withdrawn because of the threat of, of veto. So in sum, the default position for U.S. policy has been for some time essentially unconditional support of the government of Israel. That's made Israel, or helped make it at least, a regional hegemon, and has given it impunity to act in ways that are sometimes inconsistent with declared American policy. There's been a significant uh, domestic criticism, uh, particularly recently, of that result by President Carter in his book, by Zbigniew Brzezinski in his recent book, and by others. And there has also been a rekindled debate about how the policy came to be what it is, set off by a, 19, by a 2006 article um, that was uh, mentioned in the introduction uh, by Professors Walt and Mearsheimer. Historically, that causation debate has been between those who say that a president chooses the policy that he wants based on his view of the national interest and those who believe that the pro-Israel lobby somehow defined has a stranglehold on the U.S. policy process when it comes to Israel. The former group, unsurprisingly, includes most of those who have been advisors to the president on policy, and they generally like or at least defend the policy. The latter group hates the policy and includes Walton Mearsheimer. The problem is that neither of those explanations by itself fits the, the evidence very well or explains when U.S. policy can change. If the president could choose policies unilaterally, then you would expect that opposition to those policies by Israel or by its advocates wouldn't be very effective. But examination of the record of the Bush one and Reagan administrations, which is what I spent most of my research on, um, puts the lie to that. There were exceptions. In 1981, the AWACS fight, sale of arms to Saudi Arabia, and in 1991, the loan guarantee fight. But those victories were products of unusual confluences of events, and they were transitory. But I think the lobby with a stranglehold thesis is also flawed, or at least incomplete. One needs to define the lobby, first of all. And this is one place where I think the professors Walton Mearsheimer has gone somewhat astray. To be useful in analysis, the term has to, has to refer to an identifiable actor in the policy process. If it includes everybody that agrees with Israel uh, from issue to issue or on most issues, uh, then persons and groups that are fundamentally at odds with each other are lumped together. If by lobby one means entities that are dedicated to and legally entitled to actually uh, advocate uh, policies before the Congress and the executive branch, then APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee is the lobby. Other groups have been engaged in uh, most of the issues in uh, affecting Israel, but they haven't registered as lobbies. Those include a conference of presidents of major American Jewish organizations, the Zionist Organization of America, the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith. There are a lot of others that participate a fair amount of the time. The American Jewish Committee, the American Jewish Congress, major rabbinical organizations, Christian churches, policy institutes, journalists, academics. When I speak of the lobby, then, I want, it, I, I want you to understand what I'm talking about. I mean a group dominated by APAC that includes the President's Conference, ZOA, and ADL. And speaking to, to that lobby, 
the evidence, particularly from the Bush 1 administration, demonstrates that its power is derivative and conditional. It depends importantly on how congruent its positions are with the beliefs of the larger pro-Israel community, particularly the largely liberal American Jewish community. It loses credibility and it loses power when it advocates positions that are too starkly at variance with the idealized image of Israel that a lot of Israel's advocates, in fact, hold, especially when its positions also conflict with the policies of the government of Israel. All of those things, in fact, happened during the Bush 1 administration. So a better set of explanations is needed. And there's where I take my stab at it. There's been a fierce battle among advocates in the policy process to establish as predominant their principled, i.e. relating to justice, and their causal beliefs, particularly beliefs about moral nature and strategic role of Israel, about Arabs and Palestinians, about Islam, and about terrorism, and during the Cold War, also about Soviet communism. On those subjects, there have been competing sets of beliefs by segments of the Jewish community, within Christian churches, by neoconservatives, and by others. The strength and access of these different groups, and most recently I would point to Christian Zionists um, and neoconservatives, wax and wane from time to time, and external events also reinforce or weaken the arguments of advocates for particular beliefs. One of the most important splits in this regard is the, between those who oppose the land for peace formula, which includes neoconservatives generally, and also uh, dispensationalist Christians or Christian Zionists, and those who favor it on the other side, which includes, in fact, the majority of Americans and the majority of American Jews to the extent that they do express opinions on them. I mean, American Jews typically do. Americans, if you push them, will express an opinion, but of course they are not as uh, intensely engaged. So this battle of beliefs goes on. Well, how is it won? It's, it's won by setting the lexicon and the per permissible scope of the debate for policy, particularly within the Congress and the White House. Policy presumptions are embedded institutionally if they win, establishing programs, structures, budgets, operating relationships, and habits of thinking. The lobby enforces professed adherence to its beliefs, largely through the electoral process, although it has other means. It does coordinate contributions by several dozen political action committees. But the lobby started this battle to embed beliefs with an enormous set of advantages. Americans have historically identified with Israelis for many reasons, most of them having to do with their religious beliefs and parallel American and, and Israeli mythologies or national narratives. Americans have, since the 17th century, referred to America as Zion or have believed in a divine promise to restore the Jews to Zion and a Christian obligation to help, or both. There were Christian Zionist movements in the United States when organized Jewry in the United States was largely anti-Zionist. The currently surging brand of evangelical Protestantism is something called premillennialist dispensationalism, which teaches that the promised land has to be returned to the Jews before Armageddon or the second coming of Christ can occur. The principal supporters for Israel, the Jewish community and Christian Zionists, are both disproportionately engaged in politics in the United States and they are disproportionately effective and they are more likely than others to contribute or vote based on this single set of issues. 
On the other hand, America's images of Arabs and Muslims formed by popular culture and media coverage of terrorism has been almost entirely negative. The American, and that's been particularly true since 9-11, it has been a tremendous shock to the American Muslim community. The American Arab and Muslim communities have been, in fact, historically divided. Some 56% of Arab Americans are Christian. The Arab American associations that were active for many, for several decades, were led by Lebanese Americans, most of whom were Christian. And of course, Lebanese Americans do reflect the splits in their own home country, as do um, Arab Americans generally. Arab Americans and Muslim Americans up until recently have been politically unengaged and ineffective, although that may be changing. The 2006 election results uh, demonstrate some very interesting um, statistics in that regard. Surveys generally have told us over the last several decades that Americans favor Israelis over Arabs, if you ask them open-ended questions, by ratios of 3 to 1 to 7 to 1, depending on what's been happening recently in the region. So the lobby started with a very broad base of diffuse and conventional support led by a committed core of sophisticated and well-resourced advocates for Israel. For many years and on many issues, they had no organized opposition. When Ronald Reagan took office in, in January of 1981, AIPAC was a small, professional, highly effective congressional lobby dedicated primarily to increasing aid to Israel, which they did very well. It had no grassroots membership, engaged in no executive branch lobbying, had no national programs for electoral politics, educational outreach, leadership training. All of that would change dramatically in the eight years of the Reagan administration. Reagan himself came to office believing that the United States owed a vast moral debt to Israel. He had many close Jewish friends and supporters. He was fascinated with the Armageddon story of the Bible, and he in fact may have believed the dispensationalist version of those prophecies. In his campaign, he had stated that Israel was perhaps the only remaining strategic asset in the region upon which the United States can truly rely. He expected to be taken at his word when he said that he would never allow a threat to Israel's security. So with all of that background, he found himself facing the first foreign policy issue that was really serious in, in his first year in office involving two critical problems in the Middle East protecting Saudi oil fields, which were suddenly very vulnerable to a newly hostile Iran, and establishing a new platform from which to project force in that region. President Carter had put together a plan to sell airborne warning and control system aircraft and other advanced systems to the Saudis, and President Reagan decided to implement the plan. Some of the advantages of that were, of course, that the Saudis paid cash in advance, and they were building massive, multi-billion dollar facilities in the desert that would require long-term American staffing. Reagan was an immensely popular first-year president who had swept in a majority of Republicans in the Senate, and this was his first significant foreign policy decision. He had every reason to believe that he would be upheld in making the sale, particularly in the Senate. But the sale provided a test of beliefs that were widely held in the Jewish community and that the lobby had worked for years to inculcate in the Congress. Israel was America's cultural and religious sibling, her moral obligee, her only reliable democratic ally in the Middle East against Soviet designs. Arabs were none of those things. 
The Saudis had aligned against Israel in every war. They had funded the PLO. They had rejected the Camp David process. They couldn't be trusted not to use these weapon systems in an all-Arab attack on Israel. They couldn't be trusted not to lose this technology to the Soviets. Senators also, of course, were aware of the cost-benefit analysis. Um, do, you, um, uh, do you go for uh, the political contributions or do you confront the lobby? The Senate resolution to disapprove the sale was co-sponsored by the chairs of the Republican and Democratic Senate campaign committees. Reagan lost the vote in the House, which is unsurprising. It was controlled by the Democrats. He won a close vote in the Senate, but he only did that by, by going after each, sen each senator one by one. And uh, he particularly went after Republican senators. And he was relying heavily on arguments that they could not afford to cripple the presidency by publicly humiliating him on his first major foreign policy issue. What that meant was that he never really engaged AIPAC in the battle of beliefs and never satisfactorily explained how his declared belief in Israel as Israel's sole reliable regional ally, squared, was selling sophisticated arms to what AIPAC and others were insisting were Israel's mortal enemies. That failure to engage would be costly. Tom Dine had taken over AIPAC just, just before the AWACS fight. He had earlier taught a course at Harvard, in fact, on the uses of congressional power to stymie or set foreign policy, and he learned a great deal from this loss. First, he learned that AIPAC could stick com completely to its core principles, um, publicly and heatedly oppose a popular president on a critical foreign policy issue and come out the other end of that process more feared and respected than when it went in. The other thing he did, he learned, was that APAC had, had structural organizational weaknesses for such a fight. They had, tr had traditionally left executive branch contacts to the President's Conference and relied upon national Jewish organizations for line of communication outside Washington. So he went out to hire staff to deal with the White House and the executive agencies, and he also went out to set up a policy institute, a think tank, to produce policy papers for the executive branch. He also began aggressively converting APAC into an independent grassroots membership organization. As he told me, he had decided that they had to go where the voters were and not just where the Jews were. By the end of the Reagan years, there were 50,000 APAC members around the country actively disseminating APAC materials on issues and on candidates, monitoring and providing access to elected officials, coordinating campaign contributions, and vetting future leaders. There was also a campus program, um, both, again, to train future leaders, but also to uh, attempt to shape the academic dialogue relating to Israel. There were numerous uh, political action committees founded by APAC officers, and races were targeted for contributions. So what that meant was that congressmen who were not sufficiently reliable found that they had opponents who were supported by money from all over the country. Those efforts actually paid off very quickly. By 1984, when Reagan would propose arms sales to Arabs, they were opposed by senators from states where there were few Jews and where Israel had not previously been an electoral issue. All of this change, all of this growth and restructuring, meant that APAC changed internally quite a bit. It had to have a much larger budget. Small professional staff in 1979 could be funded with small contributions that brought no strings with them. Doug Bloomfield, who was long the chief congressional lobbyist for APAC, 
said that the large amounts raised after 1981 came with ropes. What he meant by that was the contributors wanted titles, they wanted entree to national officials, they wanted control over the message. The message, the control over the message was in fact taken over with the help of these new uh, national directors and, and heavy contributors by Steve Rosen, who had been hired along with Martin Indyk to set up the Policy Institute. He aggressively reshaped the message of APAC to align more and more over time with the revisionist Zionist beliefs of the Likud. Most APAC staff up until that time, including Dine and including Bloomfield, had been congressional staff to liberal Democrats. But by the end of the Reagan administration, there was such a sharp swing to the right that Bloomfield and the entire editorial staff of the House Journal were fired. After AWACS, Reagan mounted a sustained high-level effort to reach out to the Jewish community. But that had limited effect. And the next big test for the Reagan administration came pretty quickly. In 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon in an effort to essentially destroy the PLO and in in Sharon's mind in the hope of installing a friendly Christian-led government. In the course of that effort, Prime Minister Reagan deceived President Reagan on occasion. Uh, Defense Minister Sharon lied to Secretary of State Schultz and to his personal friend, the envoy in the region, um, Phil Habib. Um, Israel illegally used U.S. cluster, uh, U.S. provided cluster bombs on civilian population. And Sharon was implicated in the massacre of the refugees at the Cyber and Shatila camps. At one point, Reagan called Begin and said to him, this was a holocaust, knowing full well what the effect of that word was on Menachem Begin. Finally, IDF forces who, that had been occupying the high ground around the Beirut airport unilaterally decided to decamp from that ground. And what that did was it left U.S. forces vulnerable to a Hezbollah suicide bombing that killed 241 U.S. Marines. That December, that same year, Reagan and Schultz submitted a proposal for aid to Israel, which was similar to previous ones and included some additional money that had been uh, promised to Israel in the course of of the year. They restructured it somewhat. But what they found was that the Congress wanted to add $250 million of military aid to Israel. Schultz said later, this in the face of Israel's invasion of Lebanon, its use of cluster bombs, its complicity in the Sabra Shatila massacres. But Congress ignored Reagan and Schultz and passed the most favorable aid package that Israel had ever received. One might have thought that the lesson from that was they needed to do a much better job of explaining their policies in terms of core beliefs that would make policy predictable. But Schultz told me this. That sent me a message that it's a good idea to work with the Israelis and try to get something established that they would agree to on the budget. Otherwise, when it gets into Congress, it's totally out of control. Thereafter, Schultz put Tom Dine on a panel to advise him on on foreign aid. But even more crippling to the Reagan-Schultz Middle East policy was their inability thereafter to sell arms to Arabs, except in small amounts and on terms that AIPAC would agree to. And sometimes even when AIPAC agreed, the Congress said no anyway. The Saudis reacted to that by purchasing $30 billion worth of arms for Margaret Thatcher. Jordan was a different case. 
Reagan's Fresh Start initiative to rejuvenate the peace process depended on King Hussein's being able and willing to partner with the Palestinians and represent them in in, uh, negotiations. And he had real security concerns from Syria, who was very much opposed and threatening. He also needed proof that Reagan could keep his word when he said he was going to sell arms, or whatever he said. Um, Now, Fresh Start may never have been a package that would have provided a decisive breakthrough. But because the president could not do what he had promised King Hussein, it never really had much of a chance. By the time he wrote his memoirs, Ronald Reagan seems to have changed his mind somewhat uh, about his declared beliefs on Israel. In 1990, he wrote still of his deep belief in the moral debt America owed to Israel. But he no longer mentioned any strategic reason to support the government of Israel. George Shultz retained great emotional affinity for Israelis, but he ultimately based support of Israel on a partnership to fight terrorism. That partnership did not logically require Israeli regional hegemony, which had been shown to carry risks. However, Shultz had given up the fight and congressional ratcheting up of support. He told Tom Dine that the institutional arrangements that he had made, that they had made, uh, would guarantee that no successor Secretary of State Uh, would be able to reverse Israel's preferences. He still had sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians. He came to office expressing concern about the Palestinians. But he told me that Shamir bluntly rejected his efforts to ease Palestinian living conditions. He recognized that negotiations, he was an old labor negotiator, and he knew that negotiations required somebody who could speak with authority for the parties. In this case, the problem was somebody to speak for the Palestinians. So as he left office, he pushed through recognition of the PLO in a vain hope that Arafat would then authorize Hussein or someone else to fill that role. So then comes the Bush 1 administration. And during that administration, many elements of the reality and the mythology of U.S.-Israel relationships changed very dramatically. The end of the Cold War eliminated a key argument for strategic cooperation. The Gulf War demonstrated that Israel was an unlikely partner in some predictable regional disputes and could be a burden when the Gulf states were, in fact, cooperating with the United States. President Bush and Secretary of State Baker disdained ideology, and they also disdained domestic policy networks. That reduced APAC's effectiveness. Um, APAC had negligible uh, access in this administration. Major shifts in global and regional geopolitics nearly all were suggesting a more tethered role for Israel, and they provided reason and opportunity for pursuit of resolution of some of the regional conflicts. At the same time, Israel was led by Prime Minister Shamir, whose um, sometimes rather belligerent revisionist Zionism conflicted with the beliefs of most American Jews and caused major American Jewish organizations to debate openly the moral and political costs of rejecting land for peace. So under all of those circumstances, if Israel had been another client state, simply asking that it not use added money to pursue policies deemed contrary to the interests of the donor would have seemed unremarkable. But AIPAC and Likud leaders had grown accustomed to unconditioned support, and they weren't prepared to accept less than that. So the circumstances were ripe for a test of beliefs about Israel. And the test came when as a result of one of, uh, one of the results of Gorbachev's perestroika, over a million Russian Jews were expected to flood into Israel. Israel requested $10 billion in housing loan guarantees. 
and that was universally supported by the uh, Jewish community, all aspects of it, and most Americans, um, as part of the help needed to assimilate the Russian Jews. Bush and Baker, having assured Arab leaders in the context of, of Desert Storm that they were going to restart the peace process, knew, however, that they couldn't be seen providing money that would be used directly or indirectly for the construction of settlements in the occupied territories at the same time they were calling the parties to the negotiating table. So in the end, they were, in fact, able to force Shamir to choose between guarantees and settlements. American supporters of Israel all saw the need as a humanitarian necessity, but in fact, they tended to agree. Most of them tended to agree with the president on conditionality. Shamir would not retreat on settlements, and the Israeli voters then decisively rejected him in favor of Ishtak Rabin, who was promising to seek peace and to curtail settlement expansion. So if you tell that much of the story, it seems a clear success for presidential power, um, done with a fair amount of adroitness and good timing. However, it's important to appreciate how rare the confluence of elements facilitating that result were, and also to understand how fleeting and incomplete um, the victory, if you want to call it a victory, was. First, as to the timing, Shamir was boxed in by the fact that Russian Jews were coming and the need for aid seemed massive and immediate. The issue gelled before, po before Bush's post-war popularity plummeted and an election year was on him. Sharon was building settlements as fast as he could. The American public was tired of foreign commitments. So all of those timing vectors were pointing in the same direction. Secondly, the players. Shamir's open intransigence made the stakes clear and the compromise unattractive. Bush and Baker had no emotional commitment to Israel and had learned earlier not to trust vague promises from Shamir. Rabin represented the vision of Israel held by most Americans, in fact, a warrior who sought peace with security. When Rabin said he would pursue negotiations and curtail settlements, unconditional support of Israel was again consistent with broadly held principled beliefs, and it was neither necessary nor, in fact, was it possible any longer to confront an Israeli premier. Sharon would later show what he learned from this. Always say yes to an American president and then do what you plan to do. Third, the singularity of the leverage. This was a request for a major new aid program, but Bush and Baker would never have considered conditionality as applied to the existing aid programs, which then totaled something approaching $4 billion a year. Fourth, and very importantly, the lack of existential threat. The security threat to Israel at this point was lower than it had been in years. With Iraq defeated, Syria and Saudi Arabia cooperating with the United States and with Bush, the Russians on side, and the PLO greatly weakened. Israelis considered negotiations under those circumstances and Rabin viable options, and American supporters of Israel would then give the president more running room. The president's accomplishment was significant. It was a precedent for conditioning aid on Israeli behavior on an issue that had long been American policy, which was uh, settlement construction in the territories. And he also managed to get the parties to negotiations at Madrid that helped lay the, found, the, the groundwork for Oslo. But he was then faced with a re-election campaign that wasn't going very well. Matter of fact, it was going very badly. And a Jewish community that didn't trust Baker, who coolly manipulated everybody, including, including Israel. What that, what that led to was that 10 weeks before the 92 elections, Bush essentially gave Rabin everything he wanted. 
settlements again surged during the Rubin years and during the Netanyahu and, and Barak years afterward as well. There were offsets against the guarantees for money that was spent on settlements, but as it turned out, Israel didn't need the money anyway. There are lessons from the Bush years concerning the lobby. First, even as effective an organization as APAC loses credibility and power if it diverges from the beliefs of its broader support community on issues that are important enough to engage that community. Like the Congress and the executive branch, APAC had undergone a process where beliefs had become policy, policy had driven institutional presumption and structure. Dines changes after AWACS had made APAC much more powerful in the 80s, but the unintended consequences of the restructuring, the liquidization, if you will, of, the, of APAC, weakened it for the loan guarantee fight. The access and emotional affinity, which were there with Reagan and Schultz, weren't there anymore. And unlike AWACS, this issue didn't directly implicate the physical security of Israel. Instead, what it did was it forced choices by Israel and by Israel's supporters based on what they believed about the nature and future of the, of the Jewish state. Rabin, who knew that AIPAC had supported the Likud policies even when labor led Israel's government, denounced AIPAC's leaders to their faces in 1992. AIPAC replaced its president with a Democrat and adjusted. My primary research was done on the, the 12 years of, of Reagan and Bush one. At least you can get some primary research done on those. Um, and so uh, any analysis of the current administration is hampered by lack of access to that and the fact that most observers of this administration continue to be confounded somewhat by development. Uh, but the battle of beliefs does continue. In my opinion, based on what we know now, George W. Bush is neither a neoconservative nor a dispensationalist Christian. I don't think he does political theory or abstract theology. His faith does reinforce several things. Um, his natural tendency to see issues in binary terms. His self-confidence. Uh, his belief in the moral duty to fight evil. And his conviction that persistence is a prime virtue. His decision uh, before he became president to essentially rely on Dick Cheney as his chief personnel officer at least for the first term, was a fateful one because it meant that except for uh, Secretary Powell and, uh, and Condoleezza Rice as national security advisor, the administration was led primarily by proponents of unilateral and preemptive American force advised by neoconservatives at Defense, at NSC, and in Cheney's own powerful vice presidential office. Those folks saw 9-11 as part of a global Islamist terrorist ideology that was to be fought on the same terms that Nazism had been. Bush demanded, of course, that states declare with him or against him in the global war and demonstrate dedication to democracy. He gave Sharon, whom he called a man of peace even as he was in the midst of an incursion into the West Bank, full marks on, on both issues, but he flunked Arafat who committed a cardinal political sin. He lied to Bush about an arms shipment from all, all places, Iran. Whatever the effect of faith in shaping Bush's policies, and, and we may find out more later about that, he and political advisor Karl Rove are clearly sensitive to the disproportionate power of Christian Zionists in what is the Republican Party's very narrow political base. 
During the first term, Republican Christian Zionists held the most important leadership posts in the House of Representatives. Like neoconservatives, and unlike the majority of the Jewish community, Christian Zionists oppose territorial compromise by Israel, and they favor U.S. military action against Israel's adversaries. War is, after all, what Christian Zionists expect before the Second Coming. The roadmap and the call for a Palestinian state, I think, provide pretty good evidence that Bush is not a Christian Zionist. But the April 14, 2004 letter that he sent to Sharon demonstrates that the peace process, like everything else, is secondary to the global war on terror. In that letter, he applauded unilateral actions in lieu of negotiations, contrary to his own roadmap and to all previous frameworks. He sanctioned without condition all actions taken by Israel against organizations denominated terrorist, and he accepted annexation of the major settlement blocks without even reminding Israel of the obligation under the roadmap to freeze settlement growth. Bush and Rice may, in fact, have thought they were providing incentives and rewards to the parties in the context of the war on terror. But Sharon and Dub Weisglass, Weisglass negotiated the letter with um, Secretary Rice, understood, now Secretary Rice, they understood that they need never fear pressure to negotiate again, at least not with this administration. Danny Ayalon, Sharon's ambassador to the U.S., has equated this April 2004 letter to the Balfour Declaration in that it allows Israel to set its own borders. Bush is seldom needed pushing to act in accordance with AIPAC's beliefs, but AIPAC is now twice the size it was in 1988. Its annual conference this year, a month and a half ago, featured 6,000 attendees from around the country, um, a parade of national political leaders, um, essentially obeisance by almost all of elected official Washington, and a major address by Reverend John Hagee. Now, Hagee is the dispensationalist leader of a Texas megachurch who founded last year the Christians United for Israel, and he is the leader of efforts that have raised tens of millions of dollars from Christian Zionists for Israel. AIPAC is again adjusting since the Democrats took over both houses of the Congress in the 2000 elections. But that is really not the kind of challenge they faced in 1992. The new speaker, the House Majority Leader, the committee chairs of the relevant committees are all old and strong supporters of Israel and of AIPAC. So are all major presidential candidates. For those looking for, for different trends, there are in fact some. Walt, Mearsheimer, Carter, Brzezinski, and others have ignited rancorous but helpful debate because they are airing facts and arguments that are inconsistent with AIPAC's line and that a lot of Americans simply don't hear. Organizations dedicating to telling a different story have begun to get some traction, and I, I have a list of a number of them. Uh, and, and the Arabs, uh, are, and Palestinians in particular, are much more effectively represented now in, in Washington by uh, organizations like the American Task Force on Palestine. And the American Muslim community has finally been awakened uh, by the popular response to 9-11. And organizational efforts by Muslims may have been significant in victories, certainly in Virginia, but I think probably in as many as three other states uh, in the senatorial campaigns of 2006. Mainline liberal churches, uh, Christian churches, have taken some steps to consider disinvestment in companies facilitating Israel's occupation, um, although it isn't clear that they're going to go any further than the resolutions that they have passed. 
While the Congress is still populated by supporters of Israel, and always would be because Americans support Israel, its leaders are Democrats who favor a a negotiated uh, two-state solution, unlike the two Republican Christian Zionist majority leaders in the House um, prior to that election. But the dubious Cold War justification for Israeli hegemony has been effectively replaced by a rationale that I think is likely to last long long after the current president has gone back to Texas, and that is partnership against Islamist terrorism. Um, That rationale has the added benefit from the perspective of those who do favor Israeli impunity under any and all circumstances of reinforcing beliefs that Arabs and Muslims are untrustworthy and that Israel should never be pressured to negotiate with Palestinians while facing any imminent existential threat. The secular Fatah took over 20 years to publicly accept Israel's right to exist and to renounce terrorism. The sectarian Hamas may take that long or it may never do so. Hamas and Hezbollah are supported by Iran, the state that Israel had wanted the United States to confront in 2002-2003. In short, I think we are at a place that looks not at all like Camp David. Thank you. Be happy to take questions. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, a fascinating um, expose of uh, the relationship between the United States and Israel. Uh, interesting for me as an historian that you concentrate on the Reagan and Bush one years, but also um, rather typically of an historian, or at least LSE historian, so I want to ask a question to begin with that is uh, mostly presentist. Now, one of the things that strikes me when I look at the relationship um, in U.S. party political terms um, between the United States and Israel is how it has changed since 1948. I mean, the resistance within the Republican Party, which was very strong um, in the founding years of the State of Israel to give any kind of blanco check for uh, for American support, while a very substantial number of Democrats uh, were willing to go far uh, in, in terms of the support of Israel. By the years that you outlined, and I think this is the reason why it's right to concentrate on, on, on those years, this changed. But did it change so that it is impossible to imagine it changing again? Now, I found it intriguing what you were saying about the Bush 1 or Bush pair um, administration and the difficulties that existed in the relationship between Israel uh, and the United States then. If you draw the line to today, I mean, John Mosheimer is not a flaming radical. Uh, he's someone who would describe himself as an American conservative. I mean, he's an American conservative who opposes the war in Iraq because he thinks it's bad policy. But he's also an American conservative who is very critical, uh, as uh, uh, witnessed in his article with Steve Walt, of the ties that bind uh, the United States to, to, to Israel today. So is there a possibility that you see if the uh, Republicans, as now may be expected, are in for a real drubbing in the next presidential election, that some of those within the Republican Party who have more of the the Eisenhower or Moshama approach to the U.S.-Israeli relationship may get back into a position of influence. Do I think that's possible? Yes, I think it's possible. I don't know what odds I would would put on it. I mean, those who would be pulling for such a result could point to 
um, several things. One is that um, the, uh, and this is you know, a little off the, the immediate subject, but nevertheless I think it's, it's pointing in, 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 a, in a direction. Um, even this White House is now saying, well, we're, we're actually pretty interested in the Iraq study group's um, recommendations. Well, you know, that was an interesting panel that cut across a lot of different um, uh, contributing um, uh, parts of American political society. But nevertheless, what it reflected in the end was the, was the views that could have easily been written by the co-chairman, uh, who are old hands, who are very practical men, um, and who uh, try to sort out uh, what, not only what American interests are in real terms, but try to, try to sort out what, as a practical matter, uh, can be done to pursue them. Um, my, you know, I, I think there are, there are several things that are suggested by the history that I, I very briefly was outlining. Um, that would uh, push in that direction. You know, it, it, historically, it, it has seemed that you needed a credible negotiating partner um, in, in order to uh, get um, uh, any peace initiative off the dime. Um, and there have been some Israeli leaders who were perfectly happy and enthusiastic about negotiating and, and, and who therefore cut through the difficulties with the qualifications of their negotiating partners. Um, there were others who were always busily about disqualifying anybody who would stand up as a, as a negotiator. Um, the American president can affect that. Um, uh, and, and, and that's one of the things that Bush and Baker did was they went around, you know, Baker famously went around the Middle East um, uh, Telling each of the of the of the principals that he was meeting with um, that if you will not come to Madrid, if you will not uh, essentially confirm what you said you wanted, which was in the case of the Arabs an international conference and in the case of the Israelis uh, direct negotiations, uh, he said I've got all that set up. If you won't come, I'm going to leave the dead cat on your doorstep, and you can try to explain how the dead cat deserves to be on your doorstep. Uh, so I mean, the American president can 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 do that, and if you have, and if and if you have a a a Bush Baker uh, type of uh, Republican resurgence, then they're going to be looking uh, for for ways to do that. Um, as a practical matter, uh, would they have been able to do very much if it had con if if Shamir had gotten reelected? No, probably not. Mm. Um, and whether you can really you know, give them the credit or blame for affecting that uh, Israeli election. Um, it must have had some effect uh, on it. Um, the other thing, I, my, my view is that, um, I mean, somebody asked me the other day, well, do we need a, a, a long hudna? Do we need a long piece uh, for, for anybody to be able to move this? And again, my, my view is, no, I think, you know, leadership can, can cut through a lot of this. Um, Michael Ankrum was in Washington, and he was saying, uh, I'm, I'm here because I want to tell the story of the, the, the initiation of the, of, the, of the Irish, the Northern Irish negotiations, uh, which he was thrown into at the beginning. He didn't believe in them. He, he thought it was a terrible idea. He didn't trust them. Uh, he knew that he was meeting with at least one person who had probably personally ordered the assassination of his best friend in politics. 
He didn't want to do it. And the, all the pressure to do it, to go negotiate, came from the Americans. And he said, I'm here in Washington to remind my American friends of what they used to know, which is you've got to talk to the people uh, who are capable of violence and, and all kinds of other things um, if, if, if that is the only route uh, beyond a negotiating table to something substantive. So, um, A, I do think there are elements within the Republican Party that would go that direction, maybe more of them in the Republican Party than in the Democratic Party, uh, although I don't know about you know, Obama and, and so forth. And B, if they, sh if they show up, I think there's, there's reason to believe they could make a difference. Thank you, Mark. Other questions? I'm going to join up uh, two or three questions. Yes, sir, down there. If you could hang on just one second so we oh, get the I mic. Oh, okay. I was interested in your uh, description of Christian Zionists about the idea that the Jews must return to Israel before the Messiah uh, returns. I'm wondering whether they believe that every single Jewish person in the United States, in America, in Australia, in New Zealand, must return before the Messiah comes? Or do they have some idea, 50% or 60%? <laughs> because, I mean, I don't think yeah. uh, Jewish people in Australia are not, not going to go to Israel. So mm -hmm. the whole, if they say it must be 100%, it's never going to occur. So and the whole town must be called off. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering, do they have this idea 100% should be, or do they have some percentage? Thank you. I'll, I'll take a couple of more questions just to let people ask if that's all right with you, Michael. Um, yes, sir, over there at the, at the back. You could wait for the mic, please. Well, I just think my understanding was that America's unconditional support for Israel dates back to Johnson. I mean, uh, for, uh, there's been a recent book saying how, uh, about Kennedy, saying how Kennedy was in no way a, an uncritical supporter of Israel. Uh, came out two years ago. I mean, basically, the point is, and we're coming to the full, I mean, that's basically, um, we're talking about the, the period exactly 40 years ago, because there's, um, I mean, you, you can, Americans' unconditional support for Israel can be summed up, of course, with, of course, um, Israel's attack on the liberty during that war, and the way that, um, Johnson, Johnson just allowed it to happen. Well, didn't well not allowed him, but what I'm saying is didn't didn't make any kind of serious reaction to to, to Israel's killing of of 37 American sailors. So I mean, as, you know, as I, as, and, and since then, okay, so, and since in the last 40 years, basically Jimmy Carter and Bush Senior have basically have been the only two American presidents who slightly deviated from being unconditional supporters. Thank you. And one final question: This round up there, yes, sir. Hi. Um, I'm looking at America from uh, it's, a, it's a capital state, capitalist state, and uh, uh, here we have uh, Israeli state, which is quite small, and we have 52 Muslim countries, 1.5 billion people. So, do you think, in in the long run, American corporate interest may shift and towards the other direction, and s support for Israel diminish in that regard? You mean simply because of the relative size of the two parties involved in the conflict? Yeah. Good, thank you. Quite a bit with you on that, Michael. That's why I was looking forward to the, to the Q&A more than giving the talk. Um, with regard to the Christian Zionists, um, I don't think they have any view on how many, how many uh, uh, Jews have to come back to Israel. Um, they're their beliefs, um, I think uh, anyone that you could say was a Christian Zionist would, would believe that the Jews have to control 
as a state um, all of greater Israel. And they might argue about what that means, but it would certainly mean to the Jordan River, probably parts, many of them would say parts of, parts of Jordan, parts of Syria. Um, and, um, uh, and you would need to, uh, you know, tear down the mosque and, and rebuild the old temple, many of them would say. And so it isn't a matter of numbers of Jewish returnees. It's, it's a matter of what do, what do the Jews who are in Israel control, Unconditional support dating from Johnson. Well, I would certainly say that President Johnson gave nearly unconditional support um, to Israel. It, it at that point hadn't ramped up to the point that it did later, um, and you did have the intervening, uh, the intervening Carter years. Um, I mean, I'm uh, I've, I have read everything I can read on the Liberty. Um, and I, I couldn't begin to explain um, that series of decisions by McNamara and, and Johnson. Um, but I, I think you can make I think you can make out a case that there was a period in the Johnson years uh, when support for Israel was not in any meaningful way conditioned. Um, but there were still differences because uh, Israel. Well, in the first place, in, this, that in, that, in that 67 war, there wasn't anybody who was going to argue that there wasn't an existential threat to Israel. And if you, if you have an existential threat to Israel, you will never have an American president who will do other than support Israel. Um, well, so, and, and the quantity of support was, was, uh, was much less. Of course, in 67, they were using mirages. They weren't using um, American-made jets. Um, the, is it possible the U.S. Um, uh, interests and therefore policy could shift uh, because of uh, democracy, demography and markets? Um, one of the things I found interesting in studying um, this subject um, is uh, how little corporate America usually gets involved uh, in uh, bringing political pressure uh, in these issues. Um, they were present in the AWACS fight because, of course, there were billions of arms being sold and you were protecting the oil fields. <laughs> um, uh, so they were, they were visible then. But by and large, and, uh, and, and my, my sense of this was confirmed in, by talking to Doug, Doug Bloomfield, who even after he left APAC has followed this uh, for a very long time, you know, he said they, they show up if there's a tax issue. <laughs> They show up if there's a tariff issue, but generally speaking, they don't show up on what the foreign policy decisions ought to be out of the overall. Um, and, and could that change? Well, I mean, I, you, I can't, I, I, you, you can't rule it, rule it out, but the interests up until now, certainly oil, have been, have been overwhelming. And I'm not saying that policy hasn't been significantly shaped by oil, but that hasn't prevented unconditional support of Israel. Um, so uh, uh, it would be interesting to try to project, all right, how, what would have to change and how much, given that historically it, it simply hasn't happened. And, the, and, and, in, and in my view, um, a change, a long-term change in American policy toward Israel from a default position, uh, there's a, of a presumption of unconditional support, 
um, is would require a a shifting of beliefs about the nature and proper role of Israel amongst a lot of Americans. Um, you, and, and, and for some of them, of course, um, these are these are unarguable positions because they are religious tenets or they are strongly held ideological uh, beliefs. Um, but for the vast majority of Americans, their beliefs about Israel, which are often conflated with biblical understandings, um, are subject to confrontation with facts. Um, and that is why it is very important that other voices, which up until now have been quiet, um, are fully engaged in, in, in the public uh, debate. Because I, I, I don't think it's going to – corporations are scared to death of what happens to them if they get out there on, on Middle East policy. Um, and, and, and those who protect Israel go after them because it has happened. In, in, in the past, and, and, and corporate CEOs up until now have, have, have shied away from that fight. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, please. Thanks. Um, you described the role of actors and events very well, um, but it's geopolitics and it's economics that um, create the script by which actors play. Um, what is the benefit that America gets out of the state of Israel and the existence of Israel? What is the actual cost-benefit? Um, I believe it's in America's um, benefit to keep the area unstable, and this enables a fracture and exploit policy. And this is what um, the change in the Republican ideology from the past. I think the um, as well, the U.S. Is it, sorry, I'm <laughs> getting a bit lost here. The USA um, didn't need an empire. All they needed is the oil. And so the oil is always going to be the issue. That is going to be it, full stop. So the idea of religion and ideology and morals, what you've described in, doesn't really, they're just veils, really. A true realist of that. Yes. Other questions? Yes, in the middle over there. Well, I have a question about beliefs. Um, how important do you Could think you speak into the microphone, please? Sorry. How important in this do you think is the acceptance in the United States of the kind of Zionist version of history with regard to the foundation of Israel and so on? Hmm. So a question there about how important the founding myths of the state of Israel are. Another question? Yes, please. And of the... Uh in terms of the Jewish population, the population, uh, Jewish population outside Israel and the rest of the world is 7.5 million, of which 5.2 million are in the United States. Um, what comment would you make on that in terms of um, the influence of uh, the Jewish lobby in the USA? Thank you. Michael? There are two sets of reasons why Americans uh, support Israel. There are those who believe in the strategic asset arguments in the Cold War that Israel was a strategic asset against Israel and, I mean, against uh, the Soviet Union and, and its client states. Um, and since then, the alternative has been Islamist terrorism uh, as, a, as, a, as a strategic partnership. 
Um, and, and, I, and I have always, I have thought after research anyway that, that both of those are, are sort of head scratchers because um, in the Cold War it was true that Israel provided intelligence. They provided uh, a, a, a lot of very useful work on armed systems and war fighting techniques. They tried out American arms against Soviet arms. Um, but a lot of people would argue that that was no more than they should have been doing given the support they were getting anyway. And they couldn't serve as a platform for a projection of power in the region. The Saudis certainly wouldn't allow them to be uh, the protector of the oil fields. Um, and uh, they, uh, they themselves couldn't reach any further than Iraq. Um, and, and, and they certainly couldn't take on the Soviets directly. So what happened, of course, was that, and it happens also with regard to the terrorism partnership, uh, that um, there, is, there is truth and validity to the idea that they're a valuable partner to an extent. Um, but they always see it through the lens of their own uh, understanding of their security uh, uh, needs. Further, in many cases, you get an Israeli prime minister who doesn't want land for peace, doesn't want negotiations, and so he's also interested in disqualifying people as possible negotiating partners. And so you can use the Cold War in those, in those ways. You can use terrorism in those ways. Right? Um, Yes, right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, what, what we may be missing here, maybe needs to be said out loud, is that the Saudis understand that we will stand always by Israel. They accept that. That's fine. Um, as long as we don't empower Israel to do them damage. Um, it, it's fine with them. They accept it. Um, and so our unconditional support of Israel uh, only becomes problematic when Israel um, goes off on its own, uh, contrary to what, what American guidance might be, and, and thereby injures uh, interests that, um, that the, the Saudis are interested in. And, of course, they're more and more interested in the Palestinian issue now. And so, you know, maybe, maybe we're coming to an era where uh, that, that isn't as clear, as clear a line. Um, but, I mean, the, the, you know, the bottom line on American support for Israel is that it, it is, I think, um, for the most part, driven by emotional affinity. It is not driven by interest um, and, uh, for most Americans. And, um, and, 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 and the, the professed beliefs, including professed belief in strategic asset value, of, of Israel is then enforced in the public forum um, by very active advocates uh, who will, you know, f want you to explain uh, why you would take any other uh, position if you want to do business or if you want to get elected. Um, but, but that is all a, a, a permissible activity because the vast majority of Americans um, uh, believe that Israel is in the right most of the time and that the Arabs are not. Um, so, uh, and that goes to the second question. I mean, what, what, how, how important are the founding myths of Israel in, in these 
in these belief systems. Um, I want to be I, I want to be a little a little careful. I mean, I think um, I will say this. I mean, uh, the, the cultural images that Americans have uh, are importantly driven by things like that. that you know, start with Paul Newman playing Ari, uh, the Haganah fighter in Exodus, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and you, how can you not stand with Ari? Uh, and Americans, and you know, and Americans do, and they believe everything. Everything from that movie is is true. And in many, many, many tr movies after that, um, after that, it isn't so much the founding myths of Israel um, as it is the um, the idea that uh, that everybody who looks like an Arab uh, is likely to turn out to be the bad guy in the movie. Um, right. Um, so these these things um, these things turn out to be critically important um, because what they do is they reinforce in, reinforce what a lot of people think they were taught in Sunday school. You know that, that in in what is it Genesis 3:12 um, God said to Abraham essentially you know. Those who treat you well, I will treat well, and those who don't, I'm going to you know, not treat so well myself. Um, I'm not obviously That's a very good well. paraphrasing. Um, and and also that uh, that that Abraham and his and his heirs were to have the land of Israel and were the chosen people. And so we and you know it, don't get me started on all the on all the, the segmentation of, of of American Protestantism because they go off they go all over the lot here. I mean, there's there um, for a long time American Protestants uh, were with the Catholic Church, which declared in the second century that that the chosen people had had rejected God, and therefore the chosen people was the Church. Um, but you know that's that's gone by the boards. Uh, the 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 premillennialists don't uh, don't accept that anymore. And and so for many people, they think that what they were taught in Sunday school. Um, and what their preacher tells them every Sunday um, it requires them to support Israel. And so when they also see, when they go down to their movie house, that that uh, you know, the Jews are the the stalwart uh, fighters, and the and the and the and the and the Arabs are the the sneaky, untrustworthy people who kill babies. Um, and let's see, Jewish population. Yeah. Um, you know, the demographics are changing in the United States, certainly. Um, the, um, uh, the Jewish population is shrinking as a percentage of, of the whole. The Muslim population is growing as a percentage of the whole. Um, that hasn't made too much difference up until now because the Muslims were, were simply not politically engaged. Um, the Jews uh, disproportionately live in New York, Florida, uh, and other states that are absolutely key in the electoral college calculations. Um, they have been organized and motivated um, since the 17th century in the United States. Um, and they have, have, have networked ever since they have gotten here. I mean, uh, three of the five uh, original synagogues uh, wrote George Washington to seek his protection 
and were reassured by him that America was unlike any other place and that you know, we, we, would, we would protect their religious freedom and their ability to participate. But they're assimilating, and the youngest generation of, of, of Jews in America, um, I, I shouldn't say they're assimilating, but the youngest generation of, of, of Jews in America um, are less tied to Israel. Um, they, they are less apt to, uh, in their own minds, identify Jewishness with support of Israel. Uh, and, and actually that is not, I mean, it, it, it's historically um, important, um, but it, it, has been a, it has been a long time coming. American Jews are the most liberal of, Amer of American uh, ethnic groups. Um, American Jews for the first 60 years of the NAACP, the black civil rights organization, Jews led it. Uh, the labor unions, anything, anything on the left was led was led by Jews, and so and you know they were in the anti-war movement, they were in the the, the civil rights, human rights uh, issues all the time, and so it is apparently now starting to be true, as Rabbi Yoffe, who is the head of the reform movement, said just a month ago, um, that many of them are pretty much turned off by the occupation and the stories that they hear from the occupation and are particularly turned off by APAC's embrace of people like Reverend Hagin. Um, so, I mean, it isn't, it, it's, it's, it isn't just demographics. I mean, their, 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 their power came from organization and focus. Um, the uh, segmenting of that power may be happening to some extent, but that has to do with um, refocused by the younger members of the community. We will have to um, bring this meeting to a close. There are lots of other things that we would have liked to discuss. We will be able to return to some of these issues in the autumn. Um, David, um, uh, sorry, Paul Kennedy will do his inaugural lecture uh, for the um, uh, Philip Roman Chair in History and International Affairs on the 11th of October, for those of you who want to get that into your calendar, uh, and it will touch on some of the same issues that we are discussing today. And then in uh, late November or early December, uh, John Mersheimer and Steve Walt will be here to present on a topic very similar to what Michael presented on today as part of the launch of their new book, which grew out of the, um, the um, now very well-known article in Foreign Affairs. And both of those events will be um, under the heading of the Cold War Study Center, which will uh, re-emerge next year in a broader and better fashion than ever. I want to thank you, uh, Michael, very much for coming tonight for a stimulating lecture and for your willingness to answer questions. Thank you very much indeed.